Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the leaders here at Liberty. Uh, particularly a warm welcome to you if this is the first time you've tuned in to watch our service. Uh, we're really grateful. We'd love it if you were here with us in person. But unfortunately, that's not going to be possible for a little while, it looks like. But we're so thrilled that you've joined us online. Uh, there are loads of ways you can connect with us, as the team have already mentioned this morning. Uh, and we would love to get to know you, uh, even digitally, if we can, somehow. Um, if you're new to us, what we normally do each week here is we work through uh, a book of the Bible together, and we spend a little bit of time opening up the Word of God to see what God has to say to us. Uh, we've been working through a book called 1 Thessalonians, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul uh, uh, about 2,000 years ago, just after Jesus' death and resurrection, traveled around, particularly the Mediterranean, starting lots of new churches and introducing people to Jesus. And one of those churches he started was in the city of Thessalonica, which still exists today. It's the second largest city in Greece. And he planted a church in that city and then uh, uh, after a few weeks had to leave quite dramatically. You can read about that story in the book of Acts, which that book tells lots of stories of some of Paul's adventures. Uh, and then a few months later, or perhaps a few years later, we don't know exactly how long, he wrote this letter. Well, he actually wrote two letters to them, but we're looking at one Thessalonians at the moment. He wrote this letter to them to help prepare the church, to instruct the church uh, lay some foundations of who Jesus is and what, what a church community is supposed to look like. Uh, and in chapter five of this letter, which is where, what we're in at the moment, uh, we're just coming to the end of the book, and Paul's giving some kind of final instructions to the church community, to the family of God there in Thessalonica, telling them how to, some instructions on how to be a church together. So last week we were talking about what it is to follow leaders. Um, this week we're going to talk about what it is to build relationships within the church. And then in a few weeks' time we'll be looking at what it is to uh, worship God together and what it is to have relationship with God. Um, so if you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, if you don't have a Bible, there's loads of apps, or you can probably Google it and find the verses. Um, we're going to read just two verses today from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 14 and verse 15. Let me read it to you and then I will pray. It says, And we urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for your church, the people of God. As it says in Revelation, your bride, your family that you've put in places all over the world and you've put us here in this great city to love and to serve this city, but also to love and serve and care for one another, to help each other get to know you more, to support and encourage one another through all the different trials and joys of life. And I pray as we study these words today, it would encourage us 
as a family together, even in this frustrating, unusual season, it would encourage us what it is to be your people and would give us hope in your wonderful gospel, which has saved us and empowers us for life. Just ask right now, Holy Spirit, that here in this room and across rooms all across the city, that you would be at work this morning. Speak to people's hearts. Do good to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I think when the time comes that I'm made supreme lord and emperor of this great city of Amsterdam, the first thing that I will do is I will ban tourists from going on bikes, okay? Tourists are very welcome in the city, but they shouldn't be allowed to cycle. I'm sure you've all had the experience. Most of us spend a lot of our lives cycling around the city, and there's sort of an unwritten code when it comes to cycling. We know how to do it safely. We know how to, most of the time, not knock each other off. But tourists don't know this code. And there's something about being a tourist that as soon as you get on a bike, you can't cycle in a straight line. You can't stay on the right side of the cycle path. You can't go at the right speed. And you're basically just dangerous. And if you're cycling, you're constantly, particularly if you're on your bike, going through the center of the city, I find I'm constantly doing risk assessments all the time. And when you're assessing risk, there are two things that are important. First of all, judging if something is important. That tourist is coming towards me and he's not cycling in a straight line. That's important, because if he hits me, that's gonna hurt both of us. And the other factor to consider is if something is urgent. So if he's not just coming towards me, but he's coming towards me very quickly, then I'll need to act, which will be move out the way or just push him over. Those are the two options that you have when you assess risk, is what is urgent and what is important. And what Paul does right at the start of this passage is he says to us, and we urge you. So last Sunday, when we're looking at the previous two verses, Paul said to them, we, we ask you. So he was making a request to them that the believers in the church should respect those that God had put in authority over them. And this week, Paul sort of takes it to the other level, this next level. He says, we urge you. What we're looking at today is both important and urgent for us. That's the point Paul's trying to make to us. This is urgent. We need to hear this. We need to hear what it is for us to uh, encourage, support, admonish one another, and to do it with patience and love and kindness. And it's important because this is something that we're not very good at um, in our society, not very good at in our lives, perhaps even in our church, we're often not very good at this. And a question I want to ask you right at the start is, who knows you? As in, not just who you're a friend with on Facebook, but who, who really knows you? Who knows uh, the intimate things that go on in your heart. Who knows your weaknesses, your failings? Who knows your, your goals, your ambitions, your dreams? And I think for most of us, that list of people that really know us is probably a very short list. Maybe there's nobody on that list at all. Because in many ways, uh, social distancing isn't a new thing to many of us. That for, we've been living our whole lives distancing ourselves from people. 
putting up barriers between ourselves and other people, not wanting to really let people in, not really wanting to build genuine friendships and relationships. We want to hold everyone at arm's length where we can control, where we can keep the issues at bay. But those aren't the sort of relationships that God calls us into. Particularly within the church family, we often emphasize that word here when we talk about the church, it's a family. We're supposed to know and love each other intimately and deeply. But most of us fall prey to the, the cycle that relationships go through. Most relationships will start with an era of excitement and then sooner or later there'll be a season of disillusionment and then you have to bring some adjustment and then bring the relationship to some health. But in our culture, we're trained to stop at the second step, that relationships are exciting and then as soon as they become disappointing or as soon as you feel disillusioned or let down or frustrated, then we just back away. It's the, the Tinder model of relationships. People around us in this city are quick to be naked in body but slow to be naked in their souls. We don't ever want to really know anybody deeply and personally. And it's because when we feel that sense of disillusionment and frustration, we, we back away. And there are reasons that we do that. Often we do it because we're trained to think as individuals. And so when we come up with people that are different from us, that aren't like us, that clash with our culture, with our values, we often don't know how to engage with them. So we'll step back. We, we want to be hang out with people who are like us, who think like us, who look like us. And when we meet people that don't, we don't know how to deal with that. So we often will back away. Or often we'll back away because people are just different from us. They have different personalities. They're an extrovert and I'm introvert, so we can't be friends, so we back away from people. Perhaps the main way that we get disillusioned in relationships and we back away, at the end of the day, is just our sinful nature. Because that's what sin will do in your life. It will put up barriers between you and other people. It's, sin is inherently antisocial. doesn't doesn't like relationships, it will seek to disrupt them, to bring dysfunction into your life. And yet around us, we understand the need for healthy relationships when it comes to, um, to marriage or to family life. We know that we'll let each other down. We'll know that we will uh, disappoint one another. We know that we need to work at relationships we need to bring adjustment. We need to, to come to a place of health. We might not necessarily do it very well, but we see the need for it. But in our city around us, we often don't do that. As soon as a relationship gets tricky, there's someone in the office that you just don't get on with. We just keep out of their way. Just find some other friends. And often we take that relationship or that, that way of doing relationships, we bring that into the church. Particularly as our church gets bigger, particularly now that we're meeting solely online, we don't get to see each other much. What happens is, if you don't get on with someone, you can just keep out of their way. 
You can just, oh, just, we'll avoid them for a bit. I'll go and join another community group. I'll find some other friends. Or we can just live our lives in the church family as kind of consumers. We just sit and we take what we need, but we never give anything out of ourselves. We never ever let people into what we're really like. And the question for us today is, how do we, particularly I want to talk to us within the church family today, and if you're watching and you're not part of our church family, hopefully this will serve and bless you as well. But how do we in our church build genuine relationships, the sort of relationships that Paul is talking about here? Relationships filled with grace and love for one another, but where we're not afraid to sometimes admonish one another, encourage one another, where we're not afraid to really get to know one another and serve one another. Because in your life, you'll find sometimes you'll, find you'll have friends that appear for a reason, sometimes friends that are just for a particular season of life. Sometimes you might even be blessed with friends that will stay with you for your whole life. But if you're here, you live in this city, you're part of our church, God's called you here for a reason. It's not no accident that you are here. And you might think, well, I just came here to study, or I came here for my job, or I came here because of this relationship. No, 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 God called you here because he has a great mission and purpose for his church in this city. So he's called you here to be part of it, and he's called you here to be part of this family and for us to love one another. So let's engage with that, and let's learn what that means. And what Paul does here is, first of all, he gives us three tasks, three, a kind of a bit of a to-do list for us when it comes to building friendships, building relationships. First of all, he says, admonish the idol. And Paul's not just talking here about kind of lazy people. He's not just saying, oh, just go around telling people just to pull themselves together. What he means by idol is probably he's, he's looking back over his shoulder to what he's encouraged them to do a few verses before in terms of to, to work, as Dan was talking about a little while ago, to, to throw yourself into work. And he's talking about people that are truanting, that are absent from that, that aren't putting themselves to work, that have decided that they're just uh, uh, not going to engage in that. So when he says admonish the idol, he's not giving us just permission to, to nitpick at people's lives, just to every time we see someone who's done up their, tied up their shoes incorrectly or has dyed their hair a weird colour that we should tell them off. He's not saying that. But what he is doing is saying that there are times when we need to come alongside a brother or sister in the church and say, do you know what, I think how you acted in that way just wasn't godly. Might be because they've hurt you or they've hurt someone else. Might be that there's some false teaching that has got into their heart and led them astray and you need to sit down and say, I just don't think that's God's best for you. And it's not about telling people off, about uh, uh, just lording it over people. It's about loving one another. Sometimes love means uh, telling people some uncomfortable truths, not to hurt them, but to bring them back to Jesus and in line with his truth. 
So he encourages, first of all, to admonish the idle. Then he says to encourage the faint-hearted. Again, Paul's looking back over his shoulder to the, what else he's already written in this letter about encouragement and how, about we're, how we're supposed to use the hope of the gospel to bring encouragement to people's lives. And in this corona season that we're walking through, at different times, all of us are going to need some encouragement because we need courage because there's so many opportunities to be fearful, whether you're fearful about your health, your job, your career, fearful about your relationships even, that you're just not getting to see people. So many things to be fearful about. So many things about this season that are painful, frustrating, difficult. And we need encouragement. But a real, and encouragement means to, to effectively put courage within people. And the best way to put courage in someone is not just to a few catchy phrases or slogans, a few memes or anything like that. But it's to encourage them with the wonder of Jesus' love for them, to bring a gospel, grace-filled hope to people. That will be the ultimate thing that brings courage in people's lives. And when we see people who are being faint-hearted, who are just feeling a bit faint in their heart, that they've, they've just become a bit fearful and lost their way. We mustn't judge them or look down upon them because it might be next week we're in exactly the same place, but we can encourage them, give them some gospel courage. Number three, Paul says to them to help the weak, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. And again, Paul's looking back over his shoulder at what he's already written in this letter. And there he talked about people who were struggling with self-control in verse four of chapter four. He talked about people who were struggling to control their own body. He's talking about people who were just not able to control their sexual urges. And he's saying to us as a community, we mustn't look down upon people and judge people when they fall into sin. We're to support them, to help them. Where we see brothers and sisters who are weak, vulnerable in this area in particular. And this idea, the word he uses here to help isn't just to send them a nice message or to give them a thumbs up, but it's a, it's a more determined word than that. It means to kind of grab hold of someone to put your arm around them, to kind of cling on to them and say, I'm, not only am I going to encourage you, I'm going to walk with you through this season. That's what so many of us need. It's just friends that will be by our side. Friends that have got our backs. Friends that we know whatever we're struggling with, whatever we're fearful about, whatever we're worrying about, Whatever issue we have, we know that are going to be there for us, going to walk with us through life. And perhaps one way that you can do that, or perhaps the initial, the first way you can do that, is often to show your own weakness to people. There's something about in relationships where vulnerability will breed more vulnerability. If you're willing to open up your heart to someone, you'll find they'll be more willing to open up their heart to you. 
So we want to be a church community that knows how to sometimes, when necessary, admonish people, knows how to encourage people, knows how to support and help people, particularly when they're weak. And what Paul does is not only does he give us a bit of a to-do list here, three things to do to help relationships, friendships in the church, he then gives us some kind of some skills, some friendship superpowers to put into play. First of all, he says, be patient with them all. There's something we can do is pursue patience. This is perhaps one of the most underused skills in our society, perhaps something we've lost a little bit. The same way that we've, none of us really know how to read maps anymore because you just use Google Maps and just hit your location and route planned. And if we ever were suddenly lost without any technology around and we had to navigate with a map, we would struggle with that. We lost the ability, the skill to do that. In the same way, I think we've often lost the ability just to be patient. We don't really know what that looks like anymore. We're used to getting what we want when we want it, at the touch of a button, whether it's food delivered, our shopping to our door, any products that we would desire from Amazon the next day. But yet God calls us, particularly with people, to be patient. And so often, again, we don't use this skill. We think, oh, well, I'm, this relationship isn't working. I'll just get myself a new one. You know, I've got enough friends as it is, so I don't need this one. Was this idea of patience in the Bible, if you read a, an older translation, perhaps like the King James Version of the Bible, the way it translates the word is not patient. It talks about long-suffering, which isn't a particularly joyful way of putting it. But sometimes that's what relationships require, is to suffer people for a really long time. <laughs> it's not particularly fun sometimes, but that's often what it means. In Ephesians 4, it talks about how with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what it takes to build relationships. Being patient, being long-suffering with one another, bearing with one another, kind of putting up with one another, making every effort, being eager to maintain the unity that we already have in Christ. That's what it means to build relationships in the church, is sometimes, I'll be honest, it's hard work. People will let you down. People will irritate you. Or you'll find, you feel like, well, I've been vulnerable with them. Why aren't they opening up with me? Sometimes with people, it will take a long time to build trust and that can be hard, but yet we're called to pursue patience. I'm so grateful with so many people in my life that have been patient with me, even when I've been irritating, when I've let them down, when I've not kept my promises, not lived up to my obligations, not done the things I said I was going to do, or done things that have hurt people. I'm so grateful for so many people that have just been patient with me, that have just put up with me and where necessary have put their arm around me and said, Matt, you're being a bit of a twit, pull yourself together. 
And that's what we need in the church, to admonish people well, to encourage people well, to support people. You're going to need patience. The next thing that Paul, the next skill he gives us is to renounce retaliation. He says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. In the Old Testament, in Proverbs, it says, if anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. So if anyone's good to you and you're evil back to them, obviously that's a bad thing. But in the New Testament, Jesus and then Paul, they take it a step further. Even if someone's evil to you, you shouldn't repay them with evil, but you should be good to them in return. Jesus said in Matthew 5, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Famous phrase I'm sure we're all familiar with, to turn the other cheek. Because so often we have this moral cycle that we all exist in, that people hurt us, so we hurt them in return. Or people hurt us, so we hurt someone else. That's what happens so often. Hurt people will hurt more people. So much pain and abuse even in our society, the root of it is that the abuser themselves was first abused. That the person who's hurting someone was first hurt themselves. It doesn't excuse them from their behavior, but sooner or later you have to stop that cycle of pain and of hurt. And the way to do that is to not return evil for evil, but when evil comes to you, to turn the other cheek, to offer good to them in return. In 2 Thessalonians, it says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. It's in the context of people that have have turned their back on the church or even hurt people. It says, don't treat them as an enemy, but warn them as brothers and sisters. When people hurt you, even within the church family, they're not your enemy. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we're called into. We're called into the family of God. So we should always treat people, no matter how likable they're being, we should always treat people as brothers and sisters. We shouldn't retaliate. Now, most of us probably aren't going to find ourselves in the situation where someone slaps us and we have to turn the other cheek. I don't think that's ever happened in my life. But what it may look like is it's a heart attitude, a posture of the heart. It may work itself out on social media, for instance. Or it may work itself out, probably in the main ways, how, on how you talk about other people when they're not there. When someone's hurt you, it's easy to go to someone else in the church and just have a little bit of a grumble, a little bit of a complain, a moan. And we'll, we'll make it holy by saying, oh, I really need, we really need to pray for that person. And then we'll tell them what that person did that's bad. And really, what, we're not turning the other cheek. We're retaliating, but we're doing it in a very modern way. We're not just punching them back, but we're in our heart. That's exactly what we're doing. We're not turning the other cheek, but we want to somehow get some authority over them. We want to somehow give them a taste of their own medicine. And that's not how Paul... The Bible, Jesus calls us to live. He says, see, no one repays anyone evil for evil. When we see evil in the church family, it doesn't mean we shouldn't call out sin. 
but our response isn't to retaliate, but is to love people. Finally, Paul tells us to cultivate kindness. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Because the world we live in is full of relationships which are essentially transactional. We think, well, I'll, I'll do good to them because that means I'll get good in return. Or they've been nice to me, so I'll be nice back. It's all about a transaction. But actually, what God calls us to is, is unselfish, untransactional relationships. That we love people, that we're kind to them, no matter what. Because what we tend to do is we, when it comes to disagreements and arguments, that's when we use the absolute language. You always do this or you never do that. But we don't tend to use that language when it comes to more positive things. And Paul says here, but always seek to do good to one another. He doesn't say sometimes when you're in the right mood for it when you've had a good week. He says, no, always seek to do good to one another. Always let that be the attitude of your heart is where possible, do good to people. And this is, of the three skills, perhaps this superpower will be the most transformative, first of all, within the church. If we were a community, a family, that are always seeking to do good to one another, that would be such a powerful thing. I believe it is already. But think about, he doesn't just limit this to the church. He says, good to one another. He's talking about the church family. And then he says, and to everyone. So he's saying, this skill isn't just to be limited to the church family, but take this out into the world. In your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, wherever God's put you, seek to do good to people. I know it sounds just obvious, and hopefully it is obvious. But in the face of a, a culture which is so used to, you know, cancel culture, someone expresses an opinion that we don't like, we just cancel them. It's increasingly becoming commonplace around us. Rather, as believers, we're called to be kind to people. We're called to turn the other cheek. We're called to not repay evil for evil, but to love people no matter what. So much of the, the tolerance around us is fundamentally intolerant. Tolerance exists in our society as long as people fit within a certain mold, show a certain belief system, and if it falls outside of that, suddenly becomes very intolerant. Whereas believers in the world, we're called to love one another no matter what. It's not, there's nothing superficial about it. This is supposed to be real and deep, a kindness that will transform society. And finally, we find that the reality is that we all struggle to build friendships and relationships. And the greatest barrier for all of us to us building good friendships, good relationships, whether that's in the church, in your family, in the world around you, the greatest barrier will always be you. You'll always be the greatest problem, the greatest 
hindrance to you building healthy relationships. Because we're all aware of the, the truth about ourselves. And we think if people knew what I was really like, I don't know if this relationship could cope for they really found out what was going on in my heart. I don't know if this friendship would survive that. There's a great movie on Netflix called The Marriage Story with Adam Driver, Scarlett Johansson in it. It's a very moving film if you've seen it. If you haven't seen it, seen it I won't try and give too many spoilers away. But one of the things, the, one of the themes that the film shows is, the, I guess, the limits of human love. The film is about how they're this marriage slowly falls apart and ends up in divorce. It's a tragic story. But all the way through, you get this sense that they still love each other. That despite all these difficulties they're going through, this custody battle for their, their son, you get the impression all the way through that they still love one another. And there's a, a tremendous scene where it all comes to a climax and they have this vicious argument and they're throwing all sorts of abuse at one another. And Adam Driver turns to Scarlett Johansson and, and says, life with you was joyless. And then a bit later in the argument, he says, I wished you were dead. And you get the impression that finally his true feelings came out. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. And their relationship wasn't capable of dealing with that level of pain, that level of disappointment, of frustration. The relationship just couldn't cope with it. And so often that's the fear that we live with. That my relationships just can't cope with the truth about what I really feel. But yet all of us, we're called into a relationship with Jesus, as it says in Matthew 11, the friend of sinners. In Matthew 11, that's, it was thrown at Jesus as, as an insult. That's what his enemies would say about him. Oh, he's just a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The worst people that they could think of. He's friends with those people. And Jesus took that upon himself as a, as a badge of honor. Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm friends with sinners. That's what he's like. See, Jesus' relationship with you is wonderfully realistic. And that he's under no illusions about you. He knows exactly what you're like. And that means that he won't get disillusioned with you. Actually, if you think about it, to be disillusioned is it's actually a good thing because it's the loss of illusion. You suddenly see what someone's really like, and then you have to make a decision about how you're going to move forward in that relationship. But Jesus already knows exactly what you're like. He knows more about you than you even know about yourself. He knows those habits that you just deplore in yourself, those addictions that you can't hit, those patterns of thinking and behavior that you can't get out of, all those sinful thoughts, things you've said, things you've done. He knows all of it. He knows all of it. 
He knows exactly what you're like, and yet he still loves you no matter what. He's a friend of sinners, a friend with no illusions. He loves you just as you are. Because these, this to-do list that Paul's given us and then the skills to work it out, it's actually a picture of how Jesus loves you. But yes, he will admonish you from time to time. He'll encourage you. He'll put courage in your part. He'll support you. He'll even support you in your relationships. Yes, most of the time, human relationships are just like that in the movie The Marriage Story. They're, they're unable to cope with the real pain of what we're actually like. But yet he sent the Holy Spirit to help us to love one another, to help us to build marriages, friendships, relationships that really honor one another, that walk through pain and difficulty with one another, celebrate the highs, commiserate over the lows. The Holy Spirit can enable us to build wonderful, healthy relationships. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit will help you in your relationship with God himself. And Jesus, from him, you will always receive a perfectly patient love. You'll find that he has already renounced retaliation. That rather than, he won't repay evil for evil. That he won't look at your sins and plan how to punish you because Jesus has already taken the punishment upon himself for you. You'll find that it will be his kindness which again and again will lead you to repentance. Even when Jesus needs to admonish you, he'll do it with kindness, with love, with care. Because ultimately the, the question we asked at the beginning, who knows you, who really knows you, perhaps the only answer you'll be able to find is Jesus, but that's wonderfully true. That even if you feel horribly lost and lonely, you can count your friends on one hand, if that. You have the closest companion and friend you'll ever have, not just for today, but all of your life, you can have in Jesus Christ. He will offer you the best love you could ever receive. Let me just finish with this one verse, and then we can respond in worship. In John 15, it says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have called us friends, even in our horrible, sinful ways. You've called us your friend, and you've chosen to lay down your life for us. That's the greatest love we'll ever know. I just pray right now for anyone who's watching this who isn't a follower of you, that you would help them to today, right now, to put their trust in you, to turn their back on their old life and say, I, I want to have this Jesus as my friend. And for all of us today who are followers of you and are struggling through life, trying to build friendships and often getting in a muddle and getting confused or perhaps holding ourselves back from true friendship. I pray you would call us today into a pursuit of being patient and kind and loving towards one another. 
that you'd help us in this church family to know what it is to love one another, to sacrificially love one another as you've loved us. And we pray you would empower us to do all of that by your power, Holy Spirit. Thank you for your incredible love for us. Thank you for your friendship and companionship. Thank you that you know us just as we are. You still want us to change, but you know us as we are and you love us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.